Today's reading is from 1 Samuel 17, 1 to 11 and 32. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukkot in Judah and camped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephesdemim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze sword was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Verse 32. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. I asked Steve earlier this week, Steve did a fantastic job of the reading, and um, I don't know if you picked this up, he has an English accent, and um, I asked him, how do you not judge the rest of us who don't have English accents? Um, and uh, he just said, I, I, I don't, I just judge you. No, he didn't, he's, he's fantastic. Um, one quick announcement before we pray and get into it. Uh, my family and I are moving into JP next week, uh, further into JP, and we are downsizing our home of seven years um, to a, a smaller space, and that means we're also downsizing books. And so over the years, I've accumulated books, people have given me books, or I've bought them, and uh, I'm giving a ton away, so after the gathering today, there's a table downstairs, and you can go down and grab books for free. If you wanna help us move, you can also have pizza for free. So that's the way that works. Um, we're gonna pray and ask God to bless this mess now um, that I've just made. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us. I wanna ask you guys, I wanna just invite you to just take a deep breath. Just breathe in the presence of God right now. You know, God's been pursuing you all week. The Spirit of God has been speaking to you all week. But we're often frantic, we're often moving around at breakneck speeds. The messages that we receive are counter often to the kingdom of God. And right now is an opportunity for you to be still and to know that God is God and that you are not. And that removes a lot of pressure from you. That allows you to rest. And that's the gift of God to you right now. Jesus' easy yoke. 
He says, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. And so Jesus, bring that yoke to us. And we say, Lord, we don't want to live in the yokes that we make for ourselves any longer. And we receive you now in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to see you this morning. Beautiful day. My name is Al. If we haven't already met, as Morgan mentioned, we're continuing in the sermon series through the life of David. On January of 1964, artist Norman Rockwell published his painting called The Problem We All Live With in Look Magazine. And it's a painting of an actual person. It's a six-year-old little girl named Ruby Bridges. The scene takes place on November 14, 1960, and it's Ruby's first day of school. But it's not just any first day, because Ruby is the first African-American girl, the first little girl of color to attend William France Elementary School in New Orleans, which is why Ruby is flanked by four U.S. Marshals. On the wall behind her are racial slurs. A splattered tomato is also visible. The protesters are not visible, but the presence of these marshals suggests that they are present. They're hurling insults screaming at her with fists in the air and in the middle of the marshals, little Ruby Bridges in a white dress, pigtails, white socks and shoes is carrying a book and she's on her way to defeat a giant. The powerful giant of school segregation, hatred, fear, and centuries of racism behind it. This six-year-old little girl is the most unlikely of heroes and yet she's going to pave the way for other little boys and little girls to enter into schools that they should belong at. She has about as much chance, though, at victory as David does with Goliath in this story. Walter Bregman, a commentator I really enjoy reading, says, Goliath is a symbol for everything that is fierce and intimidating and frightening. So let Goliath be whatever threatens you, whatever makes you feel small and weak and vulnerable, whatever evil immobilizes you or whatever story you're believing that causes you to paralyze and panic with fear. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's the fear of the future or an addiction. Maybe it's employment or the fear of intimacy with others or the fear of not finding intimacy with others. Maybe it's your finances or your anxiety or your worry. You know, maybe it's aging. It's a real thing. And maybe it's death itself. Let Goliath be whatever immobilizes you in fear, fear of the future or of extending yourself too far or loneliness, whatever it might be. And that's what You can imagine this little girl and this young boy named David are facing. It's a well-known story from 1 Samuel 17 when young David arrives at Saul's encampment. And when he arrives, he sees soldiers of Israel cowering in fear. And I imagine that he's surprised by what he sees. And here's what he sees in a sentence. Goliath dominates the landscape, dominates the horizon. Israel's soldiers are camped on a hill on one side of the Valley of Elah, or as one translator calls it, Oak Valley. This is the battle at Oak Valley. And on the the hill opposite Israel, across the valley, stands the representative of the Philistine army, a giant of a man twirling a huge, heavy spear 
with ease. The huge man is wearing a coat of armor that weighs about as much as another grown man. Some say about 135, 140 pounds. And it's no wonder that he's called the champion. Some translations say he was about nine feet tall. Other translations say, and I believe are more accurate, he's about six feet nine or seven feet tall. In that society, a giant of a human. Ancient societies like Philistines, they would approach war differently than we do in modern times. It was largely fought by the men of the society, and they believed that the battle would be initially decided between the two top warriors on both sides, fighting each other. Whichever side's champion wins, they will now be the top dog and in charge of the other army, and the Philistines, if they win, will make Israel become their slaves and servants. And of course, the Philistines are convinced that they cannot lose because they got Goliath. They have Andre the Giant on their side. And David hears the shouts of this champion when he arrives. And what did he see? We said David sees that Goliath dominates the landscape. In your life, maybe right now, the very problem that you're wanting to to flee or the very issues that you're facing, they dominate your landscape. We all know what that's like. And so when he arrives on the scene, David hears the shouts of this champion. The champion confidently bullies the army, supposedly governed by God. And he threatens them. He ridicules them. His words are so loud that the ground seems to shake and grown men actually shake in their sandals. Fear is also what David sees when he arrives. When David arrives on the scene, he sees lots and lots of fear. The soldiers of Israel have a calling. Their calling is to secure the kingdom of Israel and to defend God's people. But that's not what David sees when he arrives on the scene. He sees men who have silently listened to the words of their enemies' ridicule. For 40 days they've been listening to this, putting up with half-truths, putting up with taunts. It says, verse 16, every morning and every evening for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand. They've been living with the message of doubt and discouragement for so long that it's now their new normal. And that's when David arrives. David's still just a youth. He's only been secretly recently anointed as the next king of Israel, as we talked about last week. He's still awaiting the arrival of his kingdom in secret. Saul is still the preserved or anointed king of the land, but David is still a shepherd. He's shepherding the sheep, on the back 40 of his dad named Jesse's house. Jesse sends David to deliver supplies. The word deliver, I want you to underline. David is sent to deliver supplies for his brother and the other troops of Israel. And when he arrives, David is shocked by what he sees. Goliath is bringing reproach against the army of the living God. But the message of Goliath dominates their imagination. And their actions. Verse 24, when the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him in terror. And to make matters worse, their leader, the one they're following, is terrified as well and is hiding also, refusing to go out and fight. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and they were terrified. Words shape our world. The words that you use, they actually shape your belief and your story and your world. And my communication is dominated by my imagination. 
And for Saul and his army, Goliath dominates their imagination. Every day they meditate on his massive frame. Every day they meditate on, they chew on his oppressive words that degrade their faith. So when Saul hears David's words, hey, I'm willing to go fight this guy. Who is this guy who's putting down our God? Let me at him. I got this. When he hears that David is willing to step forward and encourage Saul's words to David are, who do you think you are? This guy has been fighting since he was a youth and you're just a youth. But David's words are different. David's first words are, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine, this person of non-Jewish faith that he should defy the armies of the living God? And in these words, we find the difference between David, the shepherd king, and Saul, the cowering king, and the cowering soldiers. Remember, Goliath dominates their imagination, while God dominates, saturates David's imagination. The soldier's words are dominated by who Goliath is, whereas David's words are dominated by who God is. Here's the point. Either Goliath or God will dominate my imagination, which determines my action. I need to pause here for a second because we need to ask ourselves, where am I in this story? Now, I'm a sucker, man, for any good underdog story. In fact, I was on a flight from California back to Boston recently. I sat next to a man who was an executive in the tech world. I started talking to him about some of the leadership coaching that I do uh, in addition to pastoring, and he was interested. He said, I'd love to talk to you more about that. I'm interested in that. And I said, that's amazing. Um, I just need to finish Creed 2. I've started it on the plane here, on the ride here, and I have to finish it before I get back to Boston. So can we talk? He wanted to pay me money. And I was like, let's put that aside for a second. I got to finish this underdog story for real quick. And then I finished it, and I was in tears. I'm so moved by the story of a person overcoming all of the odds to defeat their bully and, and gain, you know, come out on top. And when I finished, I was just wanting to cry. And I had two options. Either I sit here and I act like I'm watching, I'm really into the credits after the movie, so I can compose myself, or I just tell him, hey, bro, it's still not the right time. I just need a time to compose myself. So I just acted like I was watching the credits instead. <laughs> Where are you in this story so far? The reason why we love underdog movies is because we love to put ourselves in the role of the protagonist, right? I love to put myself in the role of, say, in that case, Rocky or the kid who couldn't do whatever he was supposed to do and he comes from behind and he does it and he wins the prize and whatever it might be. But that's not what readers are intended to do in this story. This is not a story about how can you be more like David. The real question by the Hebrew authors is, where do you find yourself in this story? And the likely, the likely candidate is, we find ourselves similar to the soldiers, actually. I don't want to be associated with these soldiers, though. They're cowards. But at least spiritually speaking, I can be more like the soldiers than I care to admit. I'm sure you can relate. In fact, this past week when I was at our Thursday morning prayer in our office, one gal prayed something like, God, help us to be good soldiers who aren't entangled in the affairs of this life. Help us advance your kingdom and fight for the freedom of others. She was quoting 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as she did that, pulled out my pen, and I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I might include that in the sermon this week. 
I even shared that with a staff member. And then about an hour later, I was going to lunch. I used a staff member's car to drive there. And the moment I got in the car and turned on the car, there was a preacher on the radio, and he was giving a sermon about what? Being good soldiers. And I thought, oh, I don't think it's for the sermon. I think this is actually for my own soul at this point. In 2 Timothy, there's actually three metaphors that Paul gives on what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. One metaphor is of an athlete who's training according to the rules. He's disciplining himself. He's disciplining his body. She is competing in such a way that she's going to win that prize. The second is of a farmer who plants faithfully, waits for God to bring the, the, the crop and the, and the produce, and he's faithfully waiting for God to do the work in his life that he needs him to. And the third metaphor is that of a soldier. Timothy says, share in suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. When I heard this girl praying this prayer, I considered, like I mentioned, I considered including it. Then I realized this is more for me. And what Paul is saying in that section is essentially... Once you become a soldier or you're enlisted into a new army, your life is no longer your own. You're living in submission to a new king. Maybe it's not a recruiter, but in this case, it's an actual king. And in this section, these soldiers, their imagination is dominated by fear. It controls their actions, actually. I often listen to the words of Goliath. Goliath can easily dominate my imagination. And the words of fear can easily control my story. And it happens for me the same way it does for these men. I'm going to list out a few ways that this happens in this story. First, it starts with a counter-kingdom narrative, verses 1 through 11. What do I mean by a counter-kingdom narrative? These men are servants. They're soldiers of God's kingdom. But the voice of the enemy wants to doubt their true identity and purpose in life. He wants them to put their focus on their limited ability and human achievement. Verse 8, the Philistine says, Goliath, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? I defy the ranks of Israel today. They do serve under Saul's leadership. That's partly true, but it's not the truest thing about them. They're not servants of Saul. They're ultimately servants of Yahweh and his kingdom. And by calling them servants of Saul, the enemy is shifting their identity away from their true power and the kingdom that they're associated with. And they're associated now, they're believing the story that, oh, I'm just a coward because the person that I'm a servant of is a coward. He's causing them to question the deepest parts of them. The enemy knows that if he can get, get you to shift your identity as a beloved son or daughter and a citizen of the kingdom, then his opportunity, his chance grows as he begins to help you see through a lens of your lack rather than through God's mighty power. So what does he do? 
He shouts messages to these soldiers to cause them to reconsider who they are and why they're even engaged in the battle in the first place. And by listening to this counter kingdom narrative day after day, morning by evening, it eventually leads secondly to compromise. At what point did these soldiers decide that they would just rest in fear and not take steps of faith At what point did they think, oh, you know what? God's not with us in this way. I'm not gonna go out and charge in the battle. I don't have what it takes. I doubt that God even is here amongst us. At what point did it lead to compromise? A soldier, according to Timothy, is one that has given their life over to a mission. Their life is no longer than belongs to themselves. And I have to say, I'm concerned with some of the stories that I hear in our community. I'm concerned about the choices that sometimes we make that are based entirely on the loudest narrative that we're listening to 40 days, morning by evening. Listen, I'm not surprised that many Christians are no longer controversial in their views. Ancient biblical writers use words to describe Christians such as aliens, foreigners, strangers. When culture and the message that I'm constantly hearing is louder than scripture in my life, it won't be long until I'm more concerned with fitting in than speaking truth in love. When the message I'm positioning myself under day after day after day is, hey, this life is all there is. It's all about you. How long do you suppose before that water begins to be what I swim in? That air is what I breathe. And that's the choices I make in my life because of that. The continual counter kingdom narrative leads to compromise, which also leads to cynicism. Verse 22. In verse 22, it's obvious that David's faith is threatening to his brothers. Because of their fear, which led to compromise and cowardice, they become critics and cynics of anyone who demonstrates faith and courage to fight the battle, including their brother David. We all know what this is like. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, I know I've done this. You start to see the zeal and the excitement in the life of a new believer who says, God's calling me to this. I want to enter into this. I want to participate in this work that God's doing. And you think, "Ah, just give it a few more years. Cynicism creeps in so easily. When David eventually appears to ask why are you guys doing nothing? He's, he's putting down the living God. He's totally living contrary and speaking contrary to God's word. Why are you living like this? I'll fight this guy. His brothers immediately questioned his motives. They're like, uh, you just want a taste of the glory. Always. You always want attention. You're just a shepherd kid. Go back to those few sheep that you oversee. You have no business here. You're just a teenager. David's brothers are steeped in cynicism. The famed preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, many a man meets with more trouble from his friends than from his enemies. 
And when he has learned to overcome the depressing influence of prudent friends, he makes short work of the opposition of avowed adversaries. Someone once said that behind every cynic is a disappointed idealist. And if that's true, then cynicism as a form of self-protection does make sense sometimes. But we're meant to be led out of it because weaponized cynicism harms us and others. It's those who have faith, not those who mock it, who make the biggest risks, who show leadership, who create something new. You know why? Because creativity, not cynicism, is the real life-giving force in the kingdom of God. Anyone can share their views on how culturally aware they are or pious they are even on social media. What good does it honestly do, though? Is God really like, wow, Peter, come take a look at this. You've got to see how courageous my kid is. He's willing to post his opinion on social media. No, the real question is, how am I actually loving and caring for the poor and the vulnerable? The real question is, how am I actually facing suffering and doing that with others in community? The real question is, am I living like a soldier for Christ who's been enlisted and living solely to please the one who's enlisted me? The continual counter-kingdom narrative leads to compromise, which plays out in cynicism and lastly, unbelief. Verse 33, David said to Saul, now, don't let anyone be discouraged by this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight for the Philistine. But Saul replied, hey, you can't go out and fight this Philistine. You're just a kid. He's been a warrior since he was a kid. When David says, I'll do it, Saul replies, nope, you can't. He's too strong. It's not possible. You're too young. You're inexperienced in war. He's too big and he's too much. Why? Because Goliath dominates Saul's imagination so much that he only sees life through the lens of human resources. He doesn't have a category for the supernatural power and provision of the living God like David does. Doesn't have a category for the fact that when I, if I step out and I extend myself to love and serve others in risk, God's going to meet me in that way. Saul has lost that. And he finally comes around, though, in verse 38, basically says, fine, if you're going to fight, you should wear my armor. It's your only hope. Why? Because Saul relies on innovation because he completely lacks intimacy with God. I'm going to say it again. Saul relies on innovation because he lacks intimacy with the living God. David, on the other hand, fights from intimacy. He's been in the fields as a shepherd. He's been writing songs to God. He's been praying prayers that are real, filled with pain and joy. And he relies on his past experience. He says, hey, God's been training me all along for this kingdom impact, Saul. He says in verse 34, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. This is just generally God's pattern for preparing you to use you and empower you for life in the kingdom. How? He calls us to be faithful right where you are at. 
and then he uses your faithfulness to accomplish greater and greater things for him. So maybe it starts with a bear. A bear's enough for me, just putting that out there. And then a lion. And David's like, every time these things, these beasts were in front of me, I relied on the living God. And now this giant is in front of me and it's no different than when I trusted God and followed him by faith one step at a time because I've been doing this for a while now. If David had run scared at the lion or the bear, he never would have been ready to fight Goliath now but he had been faithful then, so he will be faithful now. What's your bear right now? What is your lion? What are the sheep that you look at and you say, God, I want bigger things than this. All I got are these sheep to take care of. No, God has put those sheep in your life to take care of because he's building your faith and he's he's building your courage, building your character. You say no to the sheep, You say no to the lion, the bear, when they come along and you run and you give in to temptation, you won't have the ability to look back on and say, here's where God was faithful. Here's where God was faithful. Here's where God was faithful. And David responds saying, verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear is gonna rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, well then go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) Such a cheesy response. He's like, okay, God talk is what we're doing. God bless you then hate it. And then Saul jumps on the spiritual train and talks like he's on David's level, but he's such a coward and he's so consumed by his own comfort. Goliath dominates Saul's imagination, whereas God dominates and saturates David's imagination. How do we know? Well, you know the story. Goliath sees this young, good look, good look, excuse me, I'm going to try it for a third time, good looking shepherd coming toward him and it angers him. He's He's offended by the fact that they would send this kid to come fight him. This is your champion? This is the best you can send me? It's an insult. I'll feed his flesh to the wild beasts, he says. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. David's imagination is so saturated with God. He doesn't care. He's so crazy because he lives in intimacy with the Trinity. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, and when, every time I read this, forgive me, I hear um, veggie tales every time I read this. So <laughs> David said to the Philistine, <laughs> yep. We're giving away a few when we're moving, by the way. If you're interested in that, you can show up on Monday and help us. Um, <laughs> David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, or the Lord of hosts, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give your carcasses, the carcass, give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in, in Israel." All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David just pulled a Mike Tyson and ran at him toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. 
the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. There's a verse in the proverb that says, I want you to close your eyes and listen to this. The name of the Lord, listen, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. David runs into the name of the Lord like he's running for safety in the midst of a storm. And it's in the name of the Lord that he puts his trust because he's been doing it for a while now since the days of his youth. And we can know this by the words that David uses to describe the name of the Lord. See, when the Philistine, when the giant comes, he curses David by all of the names of the Philistine gods. They're unnamed, unknown gods. David comes to him and says, first, I come to you in the name of the living God. He's alive. He walks with me and talks to me and tells me I am his own. And listen, as covenant believers, Jesus is the resurrected Lord and sits at the right hand of the Father where he's right now interceding, interceding, praying for you. He's the living God. David moves from the name the living God. Now he says Yahweh. And you know what? Yahweh was the intimate name that God gave to Moses when he wanted to know, who are you? It's the name of intimacy, applies relationship. No one else in this story has named the name of Yahweh. The others are cowards because they've abandoned their only source of courage. And then he moves on to this last word, the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies, the one of ultimate power. It's the name for God used 235 times in the Bible. The first time it's used is by Hannah, a woman who is afflicted with barrenness and cannot have children. And when she prays, she says, I know you're the Lord of armies. You're the Lord of strength and power. You're the Lord who commands angels. You're the Lord who is in charge of every molecule and every fiber of this world. Every atom moves in accordance with your purpose and at your command and you sustain everything by your powerful word. Give me a child, God. But lastly, David uses this word, verse 46, deliverer. Yahweh will deliver you into my hand. Listen, everything David does is a derivative of this theological premise. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is a deliverer. The purpose for David is to show everyone that there is a God in Israel who saves. His whole world is about, I want people to see the bigness and glory of God. David is God-saturated. His imagination is saturated and dominated by God, and that's the source of his courage to beat Goliath. So how then can we too find courage? Two ways, and I'll leave you with this. The first is, remember David's representation. The men of Israel gained courage because their representative ha had courage. Their guy defeated the enemy. 
This unlikely shepherd ran at the enemy and won. He won by picking up five smooth stones and putting them into a sling and saying, I don't need the things that you use, Saul. I'm going to do it the same way that I've been doing it with God all along. And he defeats the giant. He was the deliverer. David was doing more than delivering groceries or supplies. David was delivering courage. You remember why we're calling this series on David, Shadows of a King? It's because David has some pretty remarkable victories, but he also has some tragic defeats. He's a shadow of the true king to come because he has a light side and a shadow side. He's a picture of the true deliverer. The one who's here today to deliver courage to you as you face your own Goliath. David's life uniquely points to the good shepherd who's come on the scene of this world. Jesus, the Messiah, the once and future king, the one who entered into the wilderness for 40 days and heard the taunts of the enemy for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's there facing the wild beasts, the lions and the bears, it says in Mark chapter 1. And then he defeats the enemy, not with five smooth stones, but by quoting the Torah, the five books of the Bible. Jesus' imagination is saturated with the kingdom of God, and that's how he overcomes the enemy and temptation and false kingdom narratives. You with me? What did Jesus see when he entered the world? When he showed up to the scene, he showed up and he saw humanity. He saw you and me cowering on the sides, ridiculed, taunted by the enemy, taunted by evil, taunted by a counter-narrative. This is the good life. What does he see often in his church? He finds soldiers who have meditated on discouraging messages for longer than they should. He finds a community, his community, compromising, cynical, unbelieving, unwilling to move. And to you, he says, verse 32, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. I will go fight the giant. That's the essence of the gospel. We have a representative. You realize then that whatever that Goliath is that immobilizes you in fear, Jesus, your representative, has already run to that giant. He knows what it is to suffer, to be alone, to be impoverished. He knows what it is to face deep suffering and separation from the ones he loves, including God, his Father. And on the cross, he faces it head on. He runs towards the cross. He's the true champion, like David. His ascent to the throne can't be stopped. He's the Lord of armies. Jesus is delivering courage. Listen to what Martin Luther says. When David overcame the great Goliath, there came among the Jewish people the good report and encouraging news that their terrible enemy had been struck down and that they had been rescued and given joy and peace. And they sang and danced and were glad for it. And thus, the gospel of God or the New Testament is a good story and report sounded forth into all the world by the apostles, telling of the true David who strove with sin, death, and the devil and overcame them and thereby rescued all those who were captive in sin, afflicted with death, and overpowered by the devil. 
Back to verse 51. David ran over and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. But the men of Israel of Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistine to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. What did David do? He delivered courage. What does Jesus do when we look at him deeply in the gospel? He delivers courage. Do you know why? So that you can deliver courage too. Let God saturate your imagination today instead of Goliath. Becoming a follower of Jesus means he's so much more than just your example. He's your representative. You're now in Christ. You live from a place of victory that's already been gained. You live in a kingdom that cannot be stopped. And then secondly and lastly, you rely on him daily. You remember your representative and you rely on him daily. David's courage came from a life lived in solitude, intimacy with God. He was a warrior in faith because he was a worshiper of the Father in solitude and in secret. Ruby Bridges, as I mentioned, we opened with her story. She remembers the day that she walked alone, six years old, into an all-white school. The morning of November 14th, federal marshals, she said, drove my mother and me from five blocks to William, France. One of the men explained that when we arrived at the school, two marshals would walk in front of us and two behind. And it reminded me of what mama had taught us about God, that he is always there to protect us. Ruby Nell, she said as we pulled up to my new school, don't be afraid. There might be some people upset outside, but I'll be with you. Sure enough, people shouted and shook their fists when I got out of the car. I held my mother's hand and followed the marshals through the crowd up the steps into the school. The next morning, mother told me she couldn't go to school with me. She had to work and look after my brother and sister. But she told me, the marshals will take good care of you. And Rubinell, remember, if you get afraid, say your prayers. You can pray to God anytime, anywhere, and he will always hear you. And that was how I started praying on the way to school, she says. The things people yelled at me didn't seem to touch me. Prayer was my protection. For David, when you read the Psalms, what are you finding? You're finding a man whose life is lived in prayer. It's his protection. It's his rhythm. You find an honest man who's writing songs and writing poetry to God with all of his soul. Why? because his imagination is dominated by God. How is God calling you to surge forward like these soldiers? Where is God calling you to surge forward? Maybe it's in trusting him in a particular area that right now it's a Goliath and it's dominating your imagination. Let's turn to God now in silence and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we turn and follow him as the bear and the lion approach. Thank you, Jesus. You are with us, just like you were with Ruby Nell, just like you're with David. And now, Jesus, you are our true representative, our great high king. We don't just, we don't just imitate you. We're represented by you. You're the champion. And we now follow you. We turn to you. And we ask that you'd speak to us now. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.